Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. For those of us who have already watched the movie The Post, you may recall seeing Daniel Ellsberg in the field being referred to someone who was working in the embassy with Lansdale. So, who was Edward Lansdale? And why does he represent a key portal to the Vietnam War, but also U.S. policy, for better or worse, in the Philippines and Cuba? Our guest, military historian and senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, Max Boot, is the author of The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam. Published earlier this month, it has already received strikingly positive reviews in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. It is both a biography of Lansdale and an important contribution to an understanding of the Vietnam War And surprisingly, it is also a love story, as we will soon discuss. Welcome and congratulations. Thanks for having me. So tell us, who was Edward Lansdale? Edward Lansdale was this legendary covert agent who was said to be the model for both the quiet American and the ugly American. In real life, he was an Air Force officer and a CIA operative who rose to fame, masterminding the defeat of the Hook insurgency, this communist rebellion in the Philippines in the early 1950s, and then went to Saigon in 1954 and helped to create the new state of South Vietnam. Later, he found himself at odds with the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration. He tried to warn them not to overthrow his protege, No Dinh Diem, which the Kennedys proceeded to do in 1963, thus destabilizing the country and leading to the introduction of American combat troops by Lyndon Johnson. And then Lansdale tried to warn Johnson and, and General William Westmoreland that they could not kill their way out of this war. It didn't matter how quickly they killed the Viet Cong, they would be replaced. And the only way you could actually prevail would be to create a government in South Vietnam that would win the popular support of the people of South Vietnam. But his advice was tragically disregarded. And that's why the book is called The Road Not Taken, because the path that Lansdale suggested forward was not the one we actually took. You've done so much research, especially in military history. And Lansdale has been sort of periphery character. What made you decide to to focus on him? Well, that's exactly right. He has been written about by all the major writers on Vietnam, whether David Halberstam or Neil Sheehan or Mm -hmm. Francis Fitzgerald, but he was not the main character in any of their books. And even I wrote about him a little bit as a peripheral character in my last book on the history of guerrilla warfare. And it was really my editor at Norton, Bob Weil, who convinced me that there was a new book to be written entirely about Lansdale. And Initially, I was resistant to that because I thought I'd already written about him, so what more was there to say? But and then you Bob, got remarkable access to I these did. letters. Yeah, no, yeah. Bob's intuition was absolutely right because I, in the course of my biographical labors, I struck gold by getting access to these secret love letters that Lansdale had written to this Filipino woman, Pat Kelly, who was his longtime mistress and eventually second wife. And at the same time, I also had access to the letters that Lansdale had written to his first wife, Helen, often simultaneously with the letters that he wrote to Pat Kelly. And I, in fact, I was the first person after Lansdale himself to read both sets of correspondence. And this gives this unprecedented window into Lansdale's innermost thinking, into his soul, as it were. And on top of that, I was also lucky enough to get access to a bunch of newly declassified documents, including top secret reports that he wrote, that Lansdale wrote to his bosses at the CIA. And so as a result of all that, I've been able to write the fullest, most in-depth, most complete, most rounded portrait of Edward Lansdale 
that has ever been written and to go beyond the myths and the legends and to present the real man as he actually was. You know, you talk in the book about some of the similarities as well as differences, comparisons with T.E. Lawrence and Lansdale. Well, it's a fascinating comparison because Ed Lansdale was sometimes called the T.E. Lawrence of Asia, and there were certainly striking differences insofar as Lawrence was a great linguist who was fluent in Arabic, whereas Lansdale was kind of a typical American who didn't speak anything other than English, which was not much of a hindrance in the Philippines where most people spoke English. It was more of a problem in Vietnam in the 50s where very few spoke English and, and French and Vietnamese were the languages. You know, Lawrence was also, I think, a, a more brilliant person. You might call him an unstable genius who was a fantastic writer. And of course, his seven pillars of wisdom is still read and treasured to this day, whereas Lansdale did not produce any kind of lasting work of literature to describe what his adventures. Uh, but I think there was some commonality between them in that both Lawrence and Lansdale were tremendously empathetic people who could establish very close friendships with foreigners in a way that's very hard to do. They both had a real talent for winning the trust of often prickly foreign leaders, whether it was Bedouin tribesmen or people like No Din Ziem, the leader of South Vietnam, and that was really the secret of their success, that they were very influential advisors because they became very trusted friends. Let's talk about empathy because Lansdale talks about the three L's. Well, I talk about the three L's. That okay. was my attempt to extract Lansdale's methods from his life because he never did a good job of that himself, of extracting mm -hmm. those methods. And I boiled down to the three L's, which is to learn like and listen. Learn, meaning to immerse yourself in the society in which you're operating, which Lansdale certainly did in both the Philippines and South Vietnam, both countries where he spent years and really got out of the capital to, to go into the countryside and to learn as much about the people as possible, including their music, their folklore, their mythology, everything about them, not just the military balance of power. Two is to like. Uh, which is to find and befriend people that you trust, that you think will be helpful partners in the local struggle. And three, and possibly most important, is to listen rather than lecture, because, you know, we Americans love to lecture people in the developing world. And, you know, we have envoys showing up from Washington with 10-point lists of non-negotiable demands. And that wasn't the Lansdale way at all. He would listen to what the people he was working with were actually saying. And that wasn't always easy to do, because somebody like No Din Ziem was tremendously long-winded and would go on for hours at a time, boring the pants off of most Americans. But Lansdale was made of sterner stuff or maybe had a stronger bladder, and he would sit there for hours listening to what Ziem would say. And at the end of that, he would say, that's fascinating. If I understand what you're saying, it's X, Y, and Z. And then he would be seemingly rephrasing what Ziem told him, but in reality, injecting his own ideas and making Ziem believe that he had thought of him himself, a very subtle but effective method of operating. But his relationships back home weren't so strong. He wasn't a winner in very many bureaucratic battles. That's true, and one of the paradoxes of Lansdale is that he was tremendously influential at influencing foreign leaders, but less successful at influencing leaders in his own bureaucracy. He had actually some success in the 50s when he was the fair-haired boy of Alan Dulles, the CIA director, who was tremendously powerful, and that allowed Lansdale to override local bureaucrats, including ambassadors who tried to block him in the Philippines and in South Vietnam. But his luck ran out in the 1960s when he made too many bureaucratic enemies for his own good, including his own boss, Robert McNamara. Now, describe that meeting yeah, in the office. Yeah. Well, McNamara and Lansdale were like oil and water because McNamara was one of the best and the brightest, former 
president of the Ford Motor Company, Harvard Business School graduate, a believer in the power of numbers to tell us the truth about any situation. And Lansdale was a UCLA dropout, not very distinguished academically, but he had knocked around Southeast Asia for a number of years. And in 1961, when McNamara took office, Lansdale tried to educate him about the reality of this new war beginning in South Vietnam from where he had just returned. And he brought with him some captured Viet Cong weapons, some very simple pistols and rusty rifles and spears and so forth, all caked in mud and blood. And he dumped them on McNamara's immaculate desk and said to the secretary, you know, these are the weapons that are being used by our enemies. They're not very sophisticated weapons. And the people who use them, you wouldn't even think of them as soldiers, although they think of themselves that way. They don't wear uniforms. They wear black pajamas and sandals. But they're licking our side. They're licking the soldiers that we've trained and equipped, just like the U.S. Army, because they have the power of an idea. And if we're going to beat them, it's not going to be by bombing them into oblivion. The only way to beat them is with the power of a better idea, to give hope to the people of South Vietnam. Uh, and in hindsight, that was very wise advice, but McNamara was invincibly armored in his ignorance and arrogance and chose to disregard what Ed Lansdale had to say. How do you think Lansdale would have worked with Henry Karzai? I think he would have been more effective than the people that we've sent over there. And I think that's one of the problems we've had in Afghanistan and Iraq in recent years is in both cases, we developed dysfunctional relationships with our local allies, whether it was Nuri al-Maliki in Iraq or Hamid Karzai in Afghanistan. And much the same thing happened in Vietnam. After Lansdale left, the Kennedy administration clashed with No Din Diem, leading ultimately to the tragic coup against Diem. And in all those cases, what we really needed was somebody as influential and sympathetic and empathetic as Lansdale, who could establish a very close relationship with somebody like Karzai or Maliki and gently guide them along the right road instead of our typical approach, which is you know to kind of leave them alone for long periods of time and then get upset at something they do and read them the riot act and get their back up and create this relationship of distrust and mutual suspicion and hostility. That's, you know, Lansdale was able to bridge that kind of and cultural chasm. he was there chasm. for a long time. Yeah, he was there for a long time. He was able to bridge that kind of cultural chasm with his personal persuasive and empathetic powers. And that's something we very seldom had in Iraq and Afghanistan in recent years. We just have time for one more question, and many of us have seen the post. What was that relationship between Daniel Ellsberg and, and, and Lansdale? It was actually quite close. Dan Ellsberg, who was a RAND analyst, went out to Vietnam in 65 to work for Ed Lansdale. And that's, in fact, one of the very first lines in the movie where one Marine says to the other, who's the long hair? And the answer is, <laughs> that's Ellsberg. He works for Lansdale at the embassy. And indeed, he did. I actually talked to Dan Ellsberg about Ed Lansdale. And what he told me is that I loved Lansdale, I, and I love him still, he told me a few years ago. Ellsberg had tremendous respect for Lansdale. What he told me was that Lansdale kind of had this raw, raw, simplistic American facade, which was why a lot of reporters like Halberstam and Sheehan and others wrote him off. But in private, he was actually a very sophisticated, realistic observer who understood full well that the American war effort was not going as well as the official party line in Washington had it. Now, eventually, of course, there was the Ellsberg's act in leaking the Pentagon Papers, he became much more of an anti-war advocate than Lansdale ever became. But Lansdale was not exactly a conventional hawk either because he didn't agree with the doves that we should just abandon South Vietnam, but he also didn't agree with the hawks that we could bomb the enemy into submission. And mm -hmm. so Lansdale continued to occupy this kind of strange place where he didn't fit in anywhere on the political spectrum. And in spite of the Pentagon Papers leak, which hurt Lansdale personally because a lot of the revelations concern Lansdale's own activities for the CIA in Vietnam and in the 50s. Despite all that, they maintained their relationship and retained, I think, some mutual 
affection and admiration. Well, that's just one of the fascinating stories in the book. Like most of our listeners, I watched Fareed Zakaria's show, and it was great to see that your book last week was selected as his book of the week. Yes, that was very nice to see as well. And I certainly enjoyed it too. Yeah. Congratulations. Max Boot, The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale, and the American Tragedy in Vietnam. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.